Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. At the beginning of the year, I released two episodes with Kathy and Mike McCoy, the longtime designers in residence at Cranbrook Academy of Arts Design Department. Those conversations mostly focused on Cranbrook and design more generally while they were there at this very pivotal moment in design history. This is the rise of personal computers and desktop publishing, the introduction of theory into design discourse, and the birth of postmodernism. But the McCoys left Cranbrook in the mid-90s. When they left, the department was split into two, 2D design led by former guest Elliot Earls and 3D design on the other. I had a long conversation with Elliot a few years ago about the evolution of the 2D program, but what about 3D design? How has that department evolved since the 90s? And perhaps more importantly, how has it shifted as its primary outputs, industrial product and furniture design, have also gone through revolutions over the last three decades? To answer these questions, I'm excited to welcome Scott Klinker on the show. Scott has been the designer in residence and department head of the 3D program at Cranbrook since 2001. His studio work blends client and research projects across furniture and lighting and explores the spaces between design, architecture, art, and craft. This, in many ways, is the intersection that I think speaks to the space where 3D design at Cranbrook operates and innovates today, this intersection of design, of art, and craft. In this conversation, we talk about how industrial design has changed in the last 30 years. We talk about the role of fine design and craft in these emerging practices, and how he makes space for students to develop personal voices that they can take with them and use long after they graduate. If you like this episode and what we do here at Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus interviews, full transcripts, exclusive monthly newsletters, and more. Just head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast. That's patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access and help with the ongoing production of Scratching the Surface. Thank you as always for listening. And here's my conversation with Scott Klinker. Cranbrook in the 3D design department. Um, Cranbrook famously has a 3D design department. They also have a 2D design department. They have a 4D design department that just launched a couple years ago. It's not called industrial design. It's not called product design. It's not called furniture design. It's called 3D design. And I'm wondering what that means to you and sort of the openness of that name, how that influences how you approach your work there. Great question. And also, thank you so much for uh, inviting me. Yeah, of course. Um, I can I can tell from uh, listening to your podcast that you're a, a fellow uh, design nerd like me. So. <laughs> That's right. Um, 3D. Yeah. Well, um, uh, my training is uh, is industrial design, uh, but we've talked about the program, especially in the past ten years, as kind of bridging the concerns between. Um, industrial design and uh, what we call fine design, which is addressing this new context of um, the collectible design market, uh, which has uh, allowed us a lot of freedom for experimentation. Um, But I am very interested in bringing in students who are interested in 
both those sides of, of design and the interplay between them. Um, so it just, and, and also we're, you know, we talk a lot about spatial issues. So it's, it's kind of like furniture, lighting, objects, and spatial stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of, a lot of students are doing uh, installation kind of work. So especially as the conversation around design has become more uh, transdisciplinary uh, and, and there's more people who are interested in the, the mix between um, design art and craft. Mm. Uh, 3D, the, the label of 3D has allowed us a lot more freedom to um, experiment and yeah, think, think more broadly about um, design in general. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that too, because as I was thinking about that name in thinking about this conversation, Cranbrook also has an architecture program, which could be called 3D (laughs) Design. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has a sculpture department that I think, you know, you probably overlap a little bit. And so I I, I was kind of curious to hear if 3D is limiting or if it is expansive. I could see it being limiting with these other two departments that sort of have clearer names that you overlap with. How do you sort of think about, and I, and I want to be careful how I ask this because I'm, I'm very against territories and borders between disciplines, but how do you think about differentiating what 3D design is from something like, say, sculpture or architecture? Or is that something that you even think about? No, it's something I think about a lot, um, and it's probably been one of the more difficult aspects of uh, of, of teaching at, at this particular uh, time in history because there there is all this uh, interest in um, like not not being labeled or you right. know, and and not having these disciplinary uh, silos. Uh, however, I think that is also can be tenuous territory. Um, you know, this whole idea of, of blurring the boundaries. I don't like that term blurring the boundaries be- <laughs> okay. because, because it, it, it suggests this, uh, a, a kind of uh, indistinct fuzziness between disciplines and, and traditions. And I love hybridity, but hybridity has to be done rigorously. And so if you want to mix design, art, and craft, you better know what you're mixing and you better understand like the difference, at least the difference in the traditions, but that's something we end up, you know, talking um, a lot about. And it's actually a part of the title of the book that I mentioned to you earlier. It's just called remix design art craft, Uh but that, but that idea of, of um, really under, you know, doing your homework and, and understanding what these different disciplines uh, represent, the different approaches represent, ends up to being key to, to making hybrid work that is informed. And I, I think we've probably all seen, you know, that it's, it's in, in this transdisciplinary, like multimedia uh, world of education now, it's easy to arrive at work that ends up being like not good art and not good design, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> and then you have to talk about that, like, you know, how how do you navigate that? And to me, it's all about really being informed about what you're mixing. That makes sense to me. When you first said that you didn't like the term blurring the boundaries, uh, I got a little nervous. I feel like I probably say that all the time. Um, (laughs) 
but but what you're saying is is exactly right and i agree with you because i think the 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 downside of blurring the boundaries is this sense that designers can just sort of go and dabble in these other things and then call themselves that oh i'm designing something i'm a designer and i make something 3d now i am a sculpture or sculptor without sort of understanding that history and lineage and discourse around that and i think you mentioned that term fine design earlier, which I'm wondering if you could just talk about a little bit more because fine design, from what I understand, really sits at these intersections. Um, you know, it is coming from a design history, but it's living in galleries. It's in art shows. How do you think about fine design and how does that start to sort of speak to your goals for the department? Well, fine design uh, s- seems to have... Um, more overlap with the the craft traditions. So mm. um, if industrial design is focused on um, you know, mass production and fine design is more focused on um, individual objects and the whole world of collectible design uh-huh. is, is also uh, geared towards um, rarity and unique objects um, and authored, authored objects. Um, and so cr- we could, say some of the same things about um, craft too. Um, so I, I think the, the, um, the context of uh, collectible design and, and fine design uh, overlaps a lot with uh, the, the craft traditions and, you know, and to some degree um, the world of, of uh, art and, and art collecting. And so it, it also um, requires us to think carefully about how fine design announces itself relative to industrial design or mass production. So it's a lot of times it's a kind of counterpoint to mass production where, you know, mass production um, or industrial design is so committed to um, a, a, uh, an artful use of, of an industrial methods and, and a lot of times which a lot of times are using kind of standardized processes and materials and fine design um, often wants to be a, a counterpoint to that, uh, at least mm. at least in how the objects are, are used spatially by interior designers. So interior designers often want to specify f- collectible fine design objects as the statement objects uh, within, it, within an interior. And so the rest of the interior interior might be um, filled with more mass-produced things, but then the fine design thing is there to um, to really be a, a kind of um, curated counterpoint to to the mass-produced things. So all of these things uh, you you really have to understand that in order to um, position work uh, correctly in these different categories. I I don't I really don't want this conversation to. To turn into a sales pitch for Cranbrook, even though you know I, you know I am a fan, um, but I am curious, sort of, in hearing this this framing that you're doing, if you could talk a little bit more, sort of, on the ground, day to day, what that looks like at Cranbrook. I'm interested in what kind of students are coming into the program. You mentioned earlier that you're interested in students with a variety of backgrounds. Are these people who come from an art background that want to move into design? Is this, Are these students who are sort of in what I'm going to say are more traditional industrial design jobs and want 
to sort of broaden their practice. What is that sort of makeup of the students like? And then how do you sort of think about that when you think about sort of what's happening in the studio? Well, it's a, a mix and it's a intentional mix. And I, and I think, you know, this, that idea of, of curating the right group um, goes back to the McCoys. You know, mm-hmm. they, they had, uh, I, by the way, I was a student, student of the McCoys. Um, so I, I know that whole lineage, but similar kinds of, of goals where, um, you know, I'm trying to bring in a mix of people from different disciplines in order to have a rich uh, conversation. So mm-hmm. there, there will always be a few industrial designers in the mix, a few um, uh, crafts, people mm-hmm. come from crafts traditions, especially woodworking, a few architects. Um, uh-huh. and, and all of that really serves the conversation uh, in the department. I know the McCoys were always like that too. Um, but uh, what does it look like day to day? Well, I mean, uh, the way it might look uh, different um, from other programs, uh, for example, like a program that might be a little more focused on like, you know, traditional woodworking furniture, for example, mm. like there's some of that happening in my department, but it, it it's, it's, we don't get too nerdy about it. Um, it's, it is, uh, but there's a lot more work that's happening in um, materials and processes and inventing with materials and processes to to make uh, unique forms. Um, so, you know, especially over the past 10 years, there's there's been a lot of work in that direction um, in ways that have really surprised me. Um, um, so, for example, this is a this is a, you know, maybe an interesting byproduct of of that kind of research and the rep- reputation we've built for um, work into materials and processes, but um, somehow we got on Nike's uh, uh-huh. radar, and they, in the past couple of years, have hired seven people out of my program for their basically for their um, you know uh, colors, materials, and, and finishes uh, studio huh. um, because the school has built a reputation for you know innovation with materials materials and processes. If you told me, you know, 20 years ago that Nike was going to be recruiting from my department, I, I never would have believed you because there, I don't, I, I don't think I can, well, beyond a handful of shoe designs over, over the years that, you know, we, that has not yeah. been a, a focus of ours. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, I'm, that's a little bit of a, of an aside, but uh, I think I, and well, I mean, that also points to this whole new area of design or specialization of design for uh, colors, materials, and finishes. That is um, uh, also a new interest of students. People are getting hired uh, for those um, specializations now. Of the design industries or design fields, industrial design is one that I am probably broadly familiar with, but not you know, very deeply familiar with, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I have taught in schools next to industrial design programs. And I've heard you talk before about um, sort of your problems or issues or critique of thinking of design only as problem solving, that that problem solving is one part of what design is, but it is not everything. And I, and I, I think that's where graphic design and industrial design tend to overlap a lot is that, you know, we've sort of globbed on to this idea of being problem solvers and lost the sort of 
invention part or the experimentation part a bit. And I'm wondering if you could talk more about that and what what this idea of, you know, kind of design as cultural invention or design as uh, expression as or, or sort of design beyond problem solving, what that looks like in an industrial design space. Yeah, well, I, I think all of that makes sense, defining design as problem solving, but to me, it, it's very traditional. Mm-hmm. It's, it is a functionalism. You know, it's, right. an, it's an extension of modernist functionalism. Um, and it comes from a very kind of rational place. Right, right. Um, and so, and, and that was the name of the game for, you know, for, for decades and decades, you know, starting with the Bauhaus. And I think, I think um, you know, early, the, like the mid-century stuff, um, classic mid-century um, furniture that came out of Cranbrook was was um, pushing against that a yeah. bit. Um, all the all of the uh, Eames, Saarinen, um, Noel, Bertoya, mm-hmm. all all that work was was. Um, essentially in, inserting like a new level of, of craft, but a new attitude into that very rational German energy of, of the Bauhaus. And they completely transformed um, or they, they gave a new face to uh, modernism that was much more warm and human. And, and, and so I, I feel like that mentality has been in the Cranbrook DNA from the beginning that it's, you know, design is not just about uh, rational rationalism mm-hmm. um the uh, the poetic side of of design is um is just as important but it can be harder to talk about harder to and 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 harder to sell yeah uh but it's it's just as important you know i often describe my own practice as um you know i don't there you know there i have plenty of peers who describe themselves as human-centered problem solvers and and <laughs> i I just say, I want to do more than that. You know, like I want to inspire the imagination. I want to create things that can inspire the imagination. And that's my measure of, of what I think of as good design, something that both, you know, both solves problems and, and is useful and actually works, but it also has something that inspires the imagination, whether it's, you know, something poetic or it's something about, a new experience or the way it engages space or what have you. You can't see me right now, but I'm just smiling. So that is exactly sort of how I, you know, what sort of drives my work. It's what I talk about with my students all the time. I've used the phrase like less design is problem solving, more design is poetry. I like that you brought in that idea of of the the poetics of design. Mm. I, I have a question that I'm not totally sure how to ask sort of in, in response to that. Cranbrook famously has no classes, has no, you know, assignments, curriculums. It's sort of a studio environment. And I think sometimes this is a, a broad uh, sort of blanket statement, but a lot of times designers who come from a design background, who have studied design, uh, that can be a challenge for them because they are used to responding to a brief, responding to a project, responding to parameters, doing you know doing ergonomics research and human centered research, all of these things. And I'm wondering how you think about setting up structures, conditions, frameworks for creativity and expression and experimentation 
for students like that who have not had that type of um, experience when it comes to their design work before. Um, how do you sort of shift that mindset from problem solving to imagination, I guess is maybe the question, but I'm specifically yeah. interested about that in sort of like the studio model. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that is uh, a significant issue, uh, especially for people who come from design and architecture training. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, also a, across the whole uh, professional uh, fields of both design and, and architecture that, you know, I often say that people can, can enter those fields and go through their whole life without ever framing a project for themselves mm -hmm. or, or framing a set of questions for themselves, right? So you can go from like undergrad where the teacher gives you an assignment and you're answering, you know, you're answering the question the teacher gave you, right? And then you enter the professional world and you're and maybe some marketing person is, you know, framing the brief for something mm -hmm. that you work on, uh, and and so forth. And it's easy, it's easy to go through a professional career and and never um, have that moment to ask your own questions and frame your own problems. And it may be something of a grad school luxury uh, to to do that, um, but in my mind, that's a big part of what Cranbrook is all about, like providing a space for that to happen. And it's difficult. Like yeah. that, it's, it's very difficult to, to, um, to ask yourself, what's important to me? What are my values as a designer? What am I really, what are the subjects that, that really drive my imagination? And, uh, a, a big part of my work with the students um, on an individual level is helping them to um, helping them to, to define those things um, mm. and then commit to them also. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, so we think about the two year experience in grad school. You know, I want I want people to, you know, uh, go through a process, uh, an arc of development and arrive at the other end with a a something that expresses um, expertise and mastery, mm -hmm. and um, and to get that to get there, um, we we usually I, I usually go through um, what I describe as uh, similar to the design process, and and it's maybe it's a cliche, but it's this kind of like diamond shaped oh, yeah. Um, yeah. thing where you you, know, you start at the top, you you ask a question, you try a lot of things at the middle, at the at the wide middle, you you make some decisions about what's working best. And then as you move down the diamond towards the bottom, you move towards like, you know, uh, development and refinement until you arrive at the end with something that, that ex um, ex expresses uh, mastery, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully. And, and I think of uh, the two years at Cranbrook to be like that, you know, first year is often the top of the diamond second year is the bottom of the diamond. So first year, it's like trying a lot of things. At the, right. end of, at the end of the first year, we look at all the work together, make some decisions, and then make some commitment. And I do this through partly through having the students do research presentations to mm -hmm. go to dive deep in their second year and um, arrive at the end with work for their degree show that is uh, developed and mature. And um, that seems to work. There's two parts to this that I think are challenging for students, and and I'm speaking as an educator who sees this in students. I'm speaking 
as a former student, I'm honestly even speaking as like a professional now who's sort of struggling with, with these questions sometimes. Cause I think there's the, there's the question about framing a project for yourself. Like you're talking about what are, what are, what are my values? What do I believe? What do I want to do? What, what does it mean for me to be a designer? Those are all really hard, interesting questions. But then there's this other question, which is how do you then manifest those things in work in pieces of design in things that are tangible uh you know how do you sort of take these ideas and then turn them into uh design processes and things that you make and i'm curious how you think about that that it isn't just about um uh it isn't purely an intellectual exercise it is an intellectual exercise that also has a physical component to it right yeah no and i i I think you know that's that's where you go back to the design process, maybe the diamond shaped um, yeah. on a, on a more micro level, you know, on a on a project level, um, where uh, you know you have to you it, it's you know a typical kind of um, design process in a, in a way it can be where you you know you start with a question, you do ideation, you you develop a lot of concepts, you make some decisions, but part of the decision making is you know what am I what can I actually make in the right. studio, in the studio as you know, as independent research, you know, I don't, uh, as a student, I don't have a big corporate budget to pull this off. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, practicality that needs to get uh, applied at, at that point. Um, and I, it's actually a part of the process that I really enjoy, you know, it goes back to like the, the most basic part of my own design education of, you know, when the teachers always said, keep it simple. Um, and so like, you know, and, and I think that's, that is a real um, practical concern in, in school in general for this kind of independent research in, in school, like, you know, making good decisions that um, are making good practical decisions of, uh, about the scope of the project and the making part of it. Mm-hmm. It's tough. I'm wondering if these ideas how they translate, how you think about how they translate or could translate outside of Cranbrook. I think I asked this question to your your 2D colleague, Elliot Earls, off the record once, and we had a long sort of conversation about mm. this. Um, but the structure of Cranbrook, the environment at Cranbrook, like the, the buildings, that campus, um, the studio environment lends itself to this sort of um, self-reflection, to all of these questions that we're talking about, how does one do that outside of Cranbrook? Can a more traditional industrial design program embed these ideas within their curriculum? If you're working in a studio, you know, sort of, um, you know, more traditional sort of like product studio or something, how, how do you sort of work these in? And, and again, just to sort of frame my question, I, I see this with my students all the time who get really interested in these really big questions and their values and the ethics of what they do. And then they sort of have this moment where they're like, oh, I have to get a job after this. And how do I then continue these questions in a capitalist you know, system where I have to be making you know, designs or products or whatever, uh, you know, that make money, that sort of balance between these. How do you, do you see ways to do that outside of you know, the sort of Cranbrook model? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think of, of what we're doing here, like, you know, I think, um, 
you know, Kathy, when Kathy McCoy was on, um, she described the, you know, the goal of, of the program is to um, help students to find their voice as a designer. Mm-hmm. And, and I completely um, believe that and, and am evolving the program with the, um, with the same goals. Um, but the reason for that is, uh, is to, to move the student towards cultural maturity and a, and a point of mm-hmm. view, a cultural maturity and, a, and a, a point of view that will serve them in a lifelong uh, investigation, you know, right. it, and, and, will, and will serve their, their career. So if you, if you think about the field, whether it's industrial designer or graphic design, if you take away all of the skills and the nuts and bolts of the field, what's left is a value, is the designer's cultural maturity and point mm-hmm. of view. And, um, but the problem that we actually, that we discussed earlier is that most, most designers never make the time or, or don't have the opportunity or the, we could even call it the luxury of like of taking that time to develop their culture cultural maturity and point of view but that's in the end what is what will differentiate you from the crowd <laughs> um, and, right, and, and right. so so I think of it uh, you know that might sound sound idealistic but it, I also think it's very true like the you know that, that designers get the projects that they deserve in, mm. in, in the commercial world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and, and you, and you get those projects by, by uh, demonstrating a, a, a point of view. And ultimately to me, it's more like being, being an artist. It's like following what you love and, and believing in what you love and, and sticking to your guns and when you do that, you know, it's the whole sort of, you know, maybe it's like the whole Joseph Campbell, like follow your bliss sort of thing. But, <laughs> right. but like when you, when you do that, doors open up that you wouldn't expect would, would open up and you're going to meet people, you know, like you and I are talking right now, design nerds coming together. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so whether, whether it's a, you know, uh, an area of cultural investigation or an area of, um, theoretical thinking, whatever it might be, like stay true to what you love and stuff will happen. Um, but you need to make space for, for that to happen. And it's, and it's not, that is probably never going to happen if you just, just worry about marketable skills. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I, I'm curious this is perhaps maybe my last very specific question about Cranbrook. Um, you know, the the sort of mandate of the designer in residence is that you maintain an active studio practice, uh, and that you know your your studio work is happening amongst the students. And I'm wondering how teaching, how working with students, how having these types of conversations with students about them finding their voice. How does that influence the work that you're doing in your studio? Um, you've been there for a little over 20 years now. Um, I imagine that th- there's some sort of like continually finding your voice for you too, being in that environment. How does how does teaching sort of influence the studio work? Absolutely. I mean, I you know, my training coming up in the world was pretty strictly modernist and mm. 
And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, we all, we all have our biases and, uh, you know, my, my bias leans towards, you know, formal reduction and sim- simplicity and, 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 and all that stuff. And, you know, I, um, but I've always told my students, you know, this is, this is, uh, your experience here or, and with me as a mentor is never about, um, me replicating my, you know, my voice in you. It's about, you know, us finding your, um, authentic voice and running with that. Um, so, um, but it works the other way too, where, you know, I've, I've had just like years and years of students who are, um, who are testing design and, um, and, and exploring rebellious ideas and, um, uh, aesthetic rebellion mm-hmm. and really like pushing against convention in all kinds of ways that have um, tested me, tested me left and right. And, and, and it's like made me uncomfortable sometimes too, because, because, you know, so much of it is about like, I no no, I'm not going to do that like polite, correct thing. I'm going to go over right. here and, right. and, and make a counterpoint to that. And, um, and then, for me also trying to understand, okay, like how, what does that look like and how do we do that well? Um, and, and trying to, um, kind of still guide that person when they're, they're basically saying like, I don't, you know, what you're doing, what you're doing, I don't want to do. Right, <laughs> so, right. so, but that is, I think of that as like completely healthy and it's part of like the idea of research, which, mm-hmm. which really translates that word translates as question again. And so I am constantly questioning again, like the, um, all of my own biases and, and trying things. And so over time, I mean, for me, it's kind of influenced my practice in that I thought I, I was somebody who was, um, really interested in, uh, objects and furniture. And I've learned over time that I think I'm really more, uh, interested in space. Mm-hmm. I, I love, uh, I love space and systems and creative vocabularies that other other people can compose in order to make space. So, for example, like my, my latest project with uh, landscape forms, who have been a great mm-hmm. a great um, a collaborative partner, industry partner. Um, the project's called Theory, which is a whole a whole system of, of uh, outdoor um furniture forms that are fairly abstract and are kind of testing like really absorbing ideas from this from the uh, cranbrook studio about ambiguity and abstraction and mm-hmm. creating furniture ultimately creating these forms that are somewhere positioned somewhere between public art and outdoor furniture and so to me, it's in a way, it's kind of all coming together um, in, in um, very useful ways. And, and it's, it, it, although these projects are like those projects for, uh, for landscape forms are pretty intense industrial design, like, like super industrial, actually, <laughs> yeah. it's all like, you know, steel and aluminum yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so forth. But, but uh, I am trying to, um, explore ideas about space and uh, behaviors and in, in public behaviors in public space um, in a way that's very artful. So I think Kathy said something like the teacher learns the most, you know, and (laughs) it's, it's absolutely true. Um, And I, I completely 
uh, feel that that this like being at Cranbrook for 20 years has probably influenced me in ways that I don't even understand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you started answering what my next question was going to be, and I'd, like to, I'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit more. I've heard you describe your studio practice as being a mix of industry projects, uh, working with clients, commissions, that sort of thing, with what you call cultural research. These are formal studies, sort of self-generated projects. And I'm I'm really interested in how those actually fit together or how those influence each other when when those sort of more research projects make their way into the industry projects and vice versa. And if those actually are the same thing or come from the same place, how do you sort of see that that tension or that relationship? For example, one one thing I've I learned a a, a while back is that I, I like systems. Uh, mm-hmm. sy- systems of, of forms. And Honestly, I think this comes from the most sort of fundamental early life experiences of like being a kid and playing with blocks. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, that like blocks are a system of form that kind of engage the imagination. And so I, I created this, the ultimate set of building blocks called the design superset, which was um, uh, a set of uh, like tabletop scale you know, building building blocks made to a dimensional system of all different materials. So there's wood, there's marble, there's metal, there's plastic, there's um, felt, uh, and and so forth. And and so this this is the like the ultimate sketch tool for me of, uh, but also being able to recombine. Um, material semantics, you know, material, uh, material languages, you know, so I, so I, I do that. And then, um, and then, you know, five years later, the, the, uh, this landscape form project happens, which is, again, it's sort of like these building blocks. (laughs) Um, The, the theory, theory line that I was describing earlier is, is sort of like these, um, these building blocks. It's, it's a, a system of thinking or, or, thinking about um, components or a vocabulary that can be recombined to define space. Um, and I, I find I, I keep doing that over and over again, you know, both both in um, objects and also in drawings. If you look on my um, Instagram, I've, my, my Instagram goes, you know, pretty deep into it, like a lot of drawings uh, about space. Um, but you know, it's, it's mostly about mm, spatial abstraction. Um, and my, my latest project is called the light, light and space superset. So it's, it's a whole new superset that's, that is, um, based on, um, transparency, light and transparencies. So it's, it's about a hundred different parts of a, of acrylic that are freestanding that can be like recombined to define space around light. So that's the, that's the latest thing to, um, you know, if you if you want to tune in on Instagram, that's that, that's what's that's what's coming up next. But all of this is self-initiated. This is just like me um, pursuing what I'm what I'm really fascinated with, um, which is in in a lot of cases well space, but like space and light. And I, I also have a kind of a thing for what I called micro architecture do those types of things you know do you have people come to you and say hey will you do this for us like do those lead to you know that that more sort of research kind of formal studies that sort of self-generated does that actually lead to like do people see that and say like oh can you do something like that for us where those 
what starts as research becomes an actual sort of industry project? It hasn't happened a lot, but it's happened. For example, uh, about more than 10 years ago, I, um, I did a, a beam bench. So this is just me kind of like hacking together an, uh, an idea of this um, bench that could support a variety of different components made out of Unistrut. I was, it was kind of like hacked together with Unistrut. You can see it on, on my um, on my website if you want. But so, I, you know, that's something I did on my own. Nobody asked me to do that. But then um, my client from Landscape Forms, Kurt Martin, uh, creative director, has been great to work with. Um, he was in my studio and he's, and he looked at it and he's like, you know, I've been thinking about doing a beam bench. Like, would you be interested in translating that, uh, toward for, uh, you know, an outdoor context? And I said, Abs- absolutely. You know, so it's, there, there are cases of, of, of that kind of, um, build it and they will come, uh, so, sort of sort of mentality. You've been the the designer in residence at Cranbrook, like we said, for a little over 20 years. You studied at Cranbrook under the McCoys. Were you their last, were you in their last class? Yeah. 94, 95 was their last year. And that was, that's when I started there. That's, that's a fortuitous timing on, on your part. Um, you studied industrial design in undergrad. You worked as a, you know, in more, what I'm calling more traditional industrial design contexts. In sort of thinking about that history, I'm wondering how you see sort of industrial design as an industry, how that has changed, how that has evolved, and sort of how you think about that and your place in that evolution. No, it's it's changed a lot. I mean, since I was a, a, a grad student. So, for example, you know, I... I graduated from Cranbrook in 96 and was hired on by IDO in Palo Alto um, and worked there for a number of years. And at that time, IDO had um, probably at least 20 industrial designers and they were doing a lot of physical product. Now, this, so this was like the first tech wave in, mm-hmm. in the yep. Silicon Valley. And there was you know, a lot of new um uh, technology products coming out and IDEO was at the center of a lot of that. But I just went to visit IDEO in New York a couple a couple years ago and they had a thriving office. There was, had to be like 40 to 60 people running around. Yeah. They had one industrial designer. And so the whole emphasis, uh-huh. at least for, for companies like that, have you know shifted towards... Um, you know, different kinds of strategy, design thinking. I mean, IDEO was instrumental. Yeah. It's, it's instrumental in, in, in the whole start of design thinking as a, as a consultancy um, service. Um, but then a lot, of, a lot of the design projects have shifted towards, you know, experience design and digital, you know, uh, mm-hmm. user interface, um, mm-hmm. user experience. So uh, the, the actual... Uh, classic traditional industrial design field seems to have thinned out, um, at least in the United States. I think another big part of it is that so much of the production has moved to China. So mm. I don't know that much about the ID scene in China, but I I would imagine that that it's uh, pretty robust because they have proximity to the factories. Mm. Um, but you know, I think ID a lot of ID in the United States has 
the opportunities have been more with larger companies, uh, basically kind of in-house um, design positions. So like for people yeah. coming out of my, my um, program, for example, I mentioned the Nike, like Nike has hired seven people recently. Uh, Steelcase has recently hired uh, two people out of my program and so on. So, um, but the, the old days of like large consultancies, like the, you know, the, the Fitch, uh, Fitch consultancies or uh, IDEO or um, even, you know, Frog Design is still around, but you know, more focused on digital. Traditional industrial design in the United States it seems to be both kind of thinning out, but moving more towards, uh, the, you know, corporate, um, corporate in-house design teams. Yeah, that sounds right to me. And that's why I sort of asked that because as I've said before, I, I think graphic design and industrial design's trajectories are similar. I mean, I teach in a program where it's a graphic design and industrial design department together. Um, and, you know, the, the rise of human-centered design, the rise of design thinking has affected both of them. There's also this sort of squeezing that's happening on both sides, you know, whether that's from yeah. sort of user experience and digital design and sort of, especially on the graphic design side, uh, sort of development and programming on one side, but then also sort of strategy and um, kind of consulting on the other, that it's sort of forcing a, a reckoning about what what these fields do and where they go and uh, all too often it becomes that sort of the corporate role like you're talking about and maybe i'm projecting this onto you but you know it, it, I, I sense a resistance in, in some of that coming to this idea of uh you know expression and creativity and playing with materials and i'm wondering sort of where else you think industrial design which i'm putting in quotes um what other opportunities are there today what are some you know a student interested in these things who maybe are like i don't just want to go to apple and make you know refinements on the phone or whatever um yeah. you know where else you see sort of opportunities for invention yeah that sounded negative like these fields were dying yeah. that's not yeah. what i meant that's not what i meant yeah, no. i and, and yeah i don't i don't want to paint a dire yeah any yeah. sort of dire picture for the field um and also in, in terms of my my values in design i'm also a um a real pluralist like you know design is not just one thing and there are many valid ways of practicing and 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 valid ways of teaching it so um, I like thinking about design as, as being more open. In fact, like my, one of my favorite contexts when I was working at IDEO was where um, it was me and one other Cranbrook guy who were, who's teamed up with an IIT guy hmm. um, who, like, in, in my mind, uh, we had the best of both worlds. You know, IIT is, is much more um, problem-solving, um, strategic, thinking and so forth. And we had two Cranbrook guys who were, and unfortunately in, in those days, it was mostly guys, but like much more interested in form and uh, cultural ideas. Right, right, so right. It, was, it, was, it was a good mix. And I think you need all these different kinds of people. Um, design is beautifully in between things already. That's why I've always mm -hmm. loved it. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a totally. little, little bit of art, a little bit of science, a little bit of business, a little bit of engineering. And it's um, that's what attracted to me to design from the beginning. So I think there, you got to, for me, the best way to think about it is that design is a plurality. But um, 
also, I think we're living in a moment when there are so many new ways to consider practice that it's yeah. it's it's really revolutionary, you know. Yeah. And and all of this came from the internet, you know. So like, or this this shift from like industrial society to the network society. So mm-hmm. you know, industrial society was had you know a, a lot of everything was like you know stable fixed relationships and and um, and it. It, it was very, had a lot of strength because of that. But the network society, as as my favorite um, theorist, Andrea Bronzi describes it, is weak and diffuse. But, <laughs> but, and and, it, and it's, it's, it's partly because there's so many, like just the shape of the network is so different from the, you know, the mm-hmm. old corporate pyramid, you know? Um, and, and the network offers all these new possibilities but you combine that, so and like new possibilities, but new discussions, new potentials for making connections with other people that are excited about what you're excited about. And then you've got, you know, social media and e-commerce on top of that um, and uh, digital fabrication and worldwide shipping. You know, so all of those represent the, these radical new possibilities for how you can like make Make things and distribute them in the world where, if if you want to make a go go of it on your own, um, right? I mean, there's like all that is a is a, a big uh, learning curve too. But a lot of people are taking advantage of it of of like setting up their own companies and the the barriers to entry are are much lower than they ever were before. So if 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 you're somebody with ambition and ideas it's really an exciting time to be out there. So to me, all, all of that is, is, uh, is very exciting. And is, and, and uh, in my time at Cranbrook has really changed the whole conversation. I think that's exactly right. I love that. I think that's a really nice, uh, a nice way to wrap up this conversation. So I'm going to ask you the question that I used to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. I am really jazzed about this um, new book by Rick Rubin. And I don't, oh, yeah. I don't know if any of your other um, guests have talked about it, but it is not yet, but I'm so curious to read it. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. It, it, it has blown my mind. It's called the creative act, a way of being. And it's just this beautifully instructive um, book about staying authentic and living in your creative process. Yeah. So Rick comes from music, you know, he's a legendary music producer, um, but it, the other interesting thing is that his ideas apply to many like forms and, and formats and fields. So I think it's going to be this new classic book for um, students. Um, I love this book. Scott, I enjoyed this conversation so much. Thanks for being on the podcast. Me, me too, Jared. It's a great, great to meet you. And thanks for the invitation. This episode was recorded on March 27th, 2023. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon or find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.